verse 25. Passing the test. Are we prepared for testing? We're going to look at man and our ability to test God, at least to some degree, and to be tested by God, and then to study before the test by God. Verse 25 through verse 42. There's been a study done uh, University of Toronto, the University of James Madison in Virginia, kind of hooked up together and did a study on the bias of blind spots. So I want you to buckle up and hang on because this is a powerful message. It's going to be convicting. I'm trying to still pick myself up off my study floor to stand here because this is a very provocative study. And this study that they did was provocatively called Cognitic Sophistication Does Not Accentuate the Bias blind spot. In other words, we cut ourselves more slack than we cut other people. And that's no surprise. You know, we have these blind spots. Uh, we don't evaluate others by the same way in, in standard that we evaluate ourselves. That's really the basis of the study. And to prove that, all you have to do is drive through traffic, Right? We're in a rush, and we're late for an appointment. We cut someone off and think, well, you know, I don't do it that often. I'm really not a bad driver. But on the other hand, if someone does that to us, they couldn't possibly be late for an appointment, and they're a jerk, right? I mean, that's what we're talking about here. And I think we have a little bit of this testing of God here in this story this morning that... Uh, is given to us here. It's familiar in the other Gospels as well, at least the question. And let's pick it up here in verse 25, chapter 10. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? What's your reading of it? And so he answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And then Jesus answered and said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, he fell among the thieves and stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, the Levite, when he arrived at the place, he came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And so he went to him bandaged his wounds, poured on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, and he brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day when he departed, he took two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, 
I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, he who showed mercy on him. And then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. The lawyer stood up, it says in verse 25, he stood up and tested him. You know, and in reality, we must see that that's really the state of unsaved, unregenerate man. We stand up against God and we, as it were, test him. We shake our fist. I don't agree with this. If you're a God of love, then why all this suffering? All kinds of excuses and all kinds of reasons we find natural man does to find fault with God. We stand up. We resist him because in reality, we're self-righteous. This was not a sincere approach in asking the question. We can tell by the fact that he was testing, seeking to test Jesus, uh, a trap, trying to trap him in his speech. And then he sought to justify himself. The word test here, ekperizo, is a, it means to, the endeavor to attempt someone uh, and to get them to sin, to make a mistake. So he's a lawyer. He's trying to entrap Jesus, say something against the respected doctrine of the establishment. He was fishing for something. He wanted something uh, to catch Jesus by. And he calls Jesus rabbi, which is, in one sense, it's a condescension because he's a lawyer, and in the, in the social status and the structure of that time, to be a lawyer was a bit higher than a rabbi. There were lots of rabbis, but not as many lawyers. So it was a a condescending attitude, again, trying to trap Jesus in his speech. You know, you can tell that this lawyer already had it figured out. He has all the answers. He was looking for something other than what was present I'd like to take a moment to take a glance at self-righteousness because this is something that we're all guilty of. So hang on. It's okay. It's one of the blind spots that we have as people. Whether we're saved or unsaved, we, got it. we have issues with self-righteousness. I think that's why a lot of people don't come to Christ. They don't come to God. They don't see that they have a need. There's no condemnation here. We're all in the same boat. We all have the same Savior. We all have the same sacrifice. It's not about that, but it's about having our eyes open because this is something I believe that is grieving to God. It's present in the church today, very present in the world. It can be displayed in our serving, in our service, by expressing our human effort. It can be expressed while we're waiting for some external reward, like... uh, the recognition that comes from others by being a a do-gooder. It can be seen by forcing uh, and also insisting that we meet a need that might not be in the best interest of those involved. It's a feeling of well-being. We can be conscious or unconscious of it. It's very subtle. It's conscience in the sense that we know we're right and we feel good about it. It's unconscious in that we're rather smug and we know we're right. We justify ourselves in doing what we believe to be right and these actions make us feel good. Self-righteousness is obtained two ways. 
Either we can receive justification by faith or we can seek justification by works. We're either made righteous by faith or we seek to obtain it by works. Why? Because I want to feel good about myself. Because my good deeds before man have made me righteous. No. It's only through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that I can stand here and before anyone righteous and especially before God. You know, self-righteousness is dangerous because it's divisive. People that are self-righteous are often unteachable. It should be obvious that if we are self-righteous, we grieve the Holy Spirit. Now, in case you need some help with evidence of self-righteousness, let me help us. And this should nail us all at some point. We've all been guilty of this. Judgmentalism. And again, we judge other people, their motives, and not in the same way we judge ourselves. We seem to have this ability to rationalize why we can let ourselves off the hook but not give the same grace to others. Sometimes we're defensive. We need to prove ourselves. But if we're really truly free in Christ, we don't need to prove ourselves. We can be express self-righteousness through being argumentative. Having a critical spirit and becoming argumentative it's really a hostile spirit. This guy, this lawyer, had a hostile spirit towards Jesus. He's looking at him, trying to figure, judging him, trying to get him to slip up if it were possible. We can be argumentative with a smile on our face. Some people smile, but that's really deceptive because what's in the heart isn't a smile at all. We can be unwilling to forgive. We can hold a grudge. We can call attention to our good deeds. We can claim that we're sinless or blameless. These are all evidence of self-righteousness. Self-pity, the idea of murmuring, grumbling, complaining. It's basically self-righteousness. I don't deserve this. Why are you treating me this way, God? I deserve better. You know, it's the idea of feeling as though God owes us something. Now, the non-Christian cannot help themselves in this area. They, it's just simply part of our fallen nature. And it's, it's nearly impossible uh, for someone to catch outside of faith. The idea of, um, we see a lot of this going on in our day, moral grandstanding. It's, uh, it's brown bag material. You know, you, you see some of the stuff that's, written and some of the things that express on social media is just it's sickening we this is a psychologist and his, I just thought it would be helpful to read this uh, rather than try to um, formulate what he's trying to say do some Christians harm their witness by falling into the trap of moral grandstanding or virtue signaling? Or do we convey the message that we are just as deprived of others? The clinical psychologist Joshua Grubbs recently published a study which asked about 6,000 Americans questions about their most important moral and political beliefs and how they communicate them to others. Almost everyone admitted they occasionally were guilty of grandstanding, 
sharing their beliefs selfishly for the respect or status. However, habitual grandstanders experience conflicts in their personal relationships. People who reported grandstanding more often also reported more experiences arguing with loved ones and severing ties with family and friends over political or moral disagreements. People who indicated using their deepest held beliefs to boost their own status in real life also reported more toxic social media behaviors, including picking fights over politics on Facebook and berating, berating strangers on Twitter for having, quote, wrong opinions. He advises all grandstanders to check their motivations. When you enter in a, into a contentious territory with someone who differs in opinion, ask whether you're doing it so you're generally interested in communicating and connecting with your fellow human, or are you just trying to score points? Do yourself, do you find yourself trying to up, one-up the good deeds of someone else to make yourself look good to those who you respect and care for? So, this is apropos to us, if we haven't done it before, uh, Let's not go there, but some of us have been guilty of that. God help us not to be moral grandstanders. And as I said before, the unsaved, the, the non-Christian, uh, it's nearly impossible for them to catch this. According to 2 Corinthians 4.3, we should understand this. But if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age is blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. We, we all know this state, do we not? Our B.C. days, before we met Christ, how we lived, we didn't understand, we didn't know. We were insecure because of all that. And yet, we as Christians should be completely free from this attitude. You know, a believer can fall into this trap we can fail to judge ourselves according to the, the light of God's word. And the Bible tells us that if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. We're in need of self-examination in order to, for us to grow spiritually in Christ. A lot of people's spiritual maturation is arrested because they failed it in this area of self-examination. I'm good enough. Well, again, as I said, this sin of self-righteousness is very subtle. It's it's blinding. God help us. First Corinthians eleven thirty one says, For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. So therein is our responsibilities as believers is stated. This is one of the reasons for our devotional life. As we read the word, it reflects as a mere and it shows us who we are before God, and that's really what matters. It doesn't really matter what you think of me in, in the long run. It's what God's assessment of me is, what he thinks, and that's really what should be my primary focus when it comes to my devotion. What is God saying to me? Sometimes it's really easy to read the Proverbs, for example, and think, oh, I, that reminds me of this guy. You ever had that problem? Or is it just me? Probably. So you get the point. 
this guy had a question about eternal life. What shall I do? Well, was Jesus trying to communicate, you need to work for it? No. Is it works or is it faith? So in a subtle way, he's directing him to the law, is he not? What's written in the law? What reference are you going to? And so by directing this guy to the law, and if he would read it properly in self-examination, then he would come under conviction realizing that he has not kept the law at all. It would bring about confession and repentance, and that's really what we do is we take in the word. We're convicted of our sin, our falling short of perfection, and we ask God to help us and to apply the blood to us. See, going to the law and studying the scriptures as this lawyer should have been doing would have brought about confession and repentance if he had a loyal heart towards God. So he says, not only does he direct him to the law, but how do you read? That's a nice way of saying, how do you understand? How do you understand it? And so even though this man has approached Jesus with this condemning holier than thou, looking down his self-righteous nose at Rabbi Jesus. Jesus is so kind. How do you read? How, how do you understand the law? How, well, how do you see it? He's giving the guy grace. There are those who think because they know the Bible and they understand the law that they're saved. There's those who believe that they understand a certain set of facts about the Bible. And because I know what the Bible says and I believe those facts, therefore I'm saved. Just because I believe those facts about God, about Jesus Christ, doesn't make me a true believer or even a follower of Christ. In order to be a follower of Christ, I must repent. I must turn to God. I must humble myself. I must come to him as a little child. This is how the Pharisees would have viewed the crowd that followed Jesus up to Jerusalem. Oh, they're just, they're the great unwashed. They are so simple. They don't know the law. Look at them following this rabbi. You see, when we repent, that means we acknowledge ourselves, our sinfulness, our overt acts, and sometimes our inner attitudes before God are wrong. We stop claiming self-righteousness as and saying that we're good enough for God. We cease believing that good deeds will outweigh our bad choices, and therefore God will balance the scales of justice and give us the gift of eternal life. How many people fall for that lie? Eternal life is not a gift that can be earned. It's not possible for fallen humanity to earn eternal life. What gift have you ever received that you work for? Gifts are given freely by the one who offers the gift. And the Lord Almighty offers us, you and I, the gift of eternal life through the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who paid the price for salvation. It's him who can only give eternal life and the salvation. How is it? Because he is the God-man. He's the kinsman redeemer. He's the one that took on human nature and became one of us. Isn't that an amazing thing? God thought it would be cool if he would become human. That's just mind-blowing to me. But he humbled himself. He came to earth. 
as a child in the womb of his mother Mary. He lived a sin, sinless life. He became the acceptable sacrifice for you and for me if we would just simply acknowledge that we have failed before God. To acknowledge we need forgiveness and sin and understand that God is willing to give it if we're willing to ask for it. There's two things that must take place with the lost human heart to gain eternal life. Number one, a person must understand and know that they have sinned against God by confessing it to him, by telling the truth about yourself, and then simply asking God for forgiveness. We have not because we ask not. We must ask. So without contrition, there's no conversion. You're cheating yourself. You're, you're deceiving yourself because you're not being honest with God about yourself. I don't really want to tell it quite like it is because I still have a will that I want to do life my way. And I'm not willing to really lay it all out there. I want control. But until you cross that bridge of completely letting it go and throwing yourselves at the mercy seat of Christ, you're not going to be converted. You must come broken. You see, if you just keep the letter of the law, that leads to self-justification. This guy was completely, he understood it. He knew the answer he was going to give before he asked the question to Jesus. He knew where Rabbi Jesus was going. See, the Ten Commandments were not, were, they, they were given us, you know, to tell us what's right, of course, but also to expose our inability to love God perfectly. To reveal our inability to love our neighbor perfectly. Anyone who hears this and thinks they have loved God perfectly and they have loved their neighbor perfectly, I have some news for you. You are incorrect in your self-analysis. Psalm 53, 1-4, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They're corrupt. They have done abominable iniquity. There's none who does good. God looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. Every one of them is turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. Have the workers of iniquity no knowledge? So just having the correct set of facts is not enough. The devil has all the facts. They believe the facts to be true, and yet they're not saved. They live in fear and trembling, and they know they're doomed. There must be a change of heart about ourselves, about our lifestyle and our relationship with God. There must be a conversation that you and I need to have with God from our hearts. We each have to speak to God personally about this situation. We need to speak in the best way we know how. You know, other people may be able to help us with the sinner's prayer and help us with the words, but it has to be words that come from your heart and they need to be spoken in sincerity. Because when you confess from your heart that you're a sinner before him and you need forgiveness, it's yours instantaneously. It's a gift from God.
So the Bible summed up these two is summed up in these two commandments that were quoted by this lawyer. He knew. He understood. The whole Bible is summed up in these two verses. To love God. That's what we were doing this morning as we worship, were we not? It's beautiful. Beautiful. We were loving God from our hearts. The very deepest parts of who we are. From our souls, our individual individuality, our, our personality. You're unique unto yourself. There's nobody else like you. Isn't it an amazing thing? And we worship God with all our strength and with all our mind. See, God established this covenant with Israel based on loyal love. He established it initially with the patriarchs and he was bound and determined to keep his word to their offspring. And there in Egypt, he gave the seven I wills, the things that he would do for the people of God. I'm going to bring you out from under this slavery. I'm going to rescue you from bondage. I'm going to redeem your life. I'm going to take you as my people. I will be your God. I will bring you into the promised land, and I will give you this land as your inheritance. He promised that to the patriarchs, and he was bound and determined and did it for those people. Did he give the law to them and expect them to keep it perfectly? Oh, good. Now that I've chosen them, now that they're my people, they'll never sin again. I'm glad I got that taken care of. No, God knew perfectly that they couldn't keep the law. He actually knew all the things that they would do in rebellion against him, even if they, after they were instructed. But his mercy was based upon one thing, and this is what he was looking for. Yes, these are the laws. You know, a little side note here. I don't think we get and understand the sacrifices that were there in, in the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. They say we went through those, uh, the, the furniture and stuff in Exodus. We go through the, the offerings in Leviticus and, and then rehearse some of that in Numbers. You know, it's just, wow, all these rituals and things. Most of those sacrifices had to do with Yahweh being in the midst of his people. If God is camped in your camp, he is in the center of your camp, you got to be careful because if you cross into sacred space and you haven't done the appropriate thing of cleansing yourself and humbling yourself before God, you're dead. And he was trying to protect his people. It was all about what is holy and unholy, defiled and undefiled, clean and unclean. Get it through your heart. Get it through your mind that if you're going to enter into my presence, this is what required because you're not going to like the results otherwise. That's really the bulk of the, of the rituals there. Yes, there was the sin offering. And yes, Jesus is shadowed and typed and figured in all this. And it's all completed in the person of Christ. It's the end of the law. Christ is the end of the law. We understand that. But what was the basis? What was the, you bottom liners, you know, just like me. Just give me the bottom line, pastor. Well, here's the bottom line. It's all based in loyal love. Hesed is the Hebrew word. God has loyal love toward the patriarchs. And because he loved Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he made a promise to them, he covenanted with them. He also covenanted with their children and said, it was all based in what? That loyal love. I have loyal love for you. I've made provisions for your failures, your shortcomings. Forgiveness is here to be, to be had for those who inquire. All I'm asking in return is that you have the same for me, loyal love. And it's the same in the New Testament. Do you have loyal love for Jesus Christ? 
He has loyal love to you. We express that loyal love through our obedience to him. And when we fight and wrestle with our sin nature, it's to break us down and humble us before him, to understand grace, to understand mercy, so that in relationships with other people, we're not self-righteous and we learn how to get along. We learn how to love others with loyal love. Love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, I can, how can I say I love God and not love someone that I see? This is what John, 1 John uh, indicates to us. You say I love God and hate your brother. How is it you can say you can love God who you cannot see and hate the brother that you can see? You know, there's, there's, it's incongruent. You have to, there's a problem there. We're to love our neighbor as ourself. And of course, we realize he was trying to justify himself here, this guy. He was trying to give him a way out of true confession. You know, lawyers are taught to defend their clients and escape the punishment of the law. They look for a loophole to escape the consequences of true justice, do they not? It's pride within the human heart that will restrain us from true confession and acknowledgement of our sin. In our natural state, we're too ashamed to face the truth. And that's why we need the presence of the Holy Spirit to aid us in telling the truth about ourselves to God. So who is my neighbor anyway? Only those that are near me in proximity. Nah. And so he gives us the story of this certain man I love this word. You kind of get the idea that I like that word. I use it a lot because Luke uses it a lot. A certain man, not just any man. You're not just any person sitting in this pew this morning. God is aware of each and every individual that's ever been created and born. Those that have passed and those that are yet to come and those that are alive. God is aware of each and every one of us. He knows our downsetting and our uprising. The very hair on our heads are all numbered. This is not just any man. God knows the certainty of every human being. And this certain man traveled from Jerusalem to Jericho. And this is kind of a, a rough route. Uh, it's a 17-mile trek from Jerusalem to Jericho. You drop an altitude about 3,300 um, feet, uh, which, by the way, Jericho is over 700 feet below sea level. So it's a lot easier to go down to Jericho than it is up to Jerusalem from that point. <laughs> Probably easier to just roll down the hill. <laughs> but this guy, as he's, we've read, fell among the thieves. They stripped him, they wounded him, and they just simply left him to die. And three people came by. Two were religious, as we've read, and one was a Samaritan, a half-breed. Someone who was not really respected. Someone who uh, the Jews would not acknowledge as being able to be saved. They were the outcasts. And the priest, he saw, the word saw here is Zidane, it is to perceive, to realize. He realized that something was not right, and he saw the man, he went around, he passed by, no compassion. Maybe he had fulfilled his service at the temple and was headed home. I don't have time for this. I want to get home. It's been a long week and I've done my duty. I just don't have time for this. And the Levite, 
Same word, saw. No compassion. Again, he came a little closer and he looked and then he passed by. You know, you have to think about this for a moment. No matter how messed up people are, and Lord knows we've got a really messed up culture right now. I mean, people don't know if they're a boy or a girl, what bathroom to use. I mean, we got parents that they're completely clueless allowing bad things to happen to their children. I mean, it's just, most of the stuff is just, it, it's, un, it, it's hard to even speak of it. It's just so bizarre. Never seen anything like it. But people are, we know are created in the image of God no matter how depraved they've, they've become in their thinking or their actions. And we owe it to them as Christians to have compassion and love for them. There's a lot of things that are, they may have done and do that are disturbing. But we, we cannot give up hope on humanity. There's a God in heaven. He's still on the throne. He has the ability and the power and authority to change the darkest of hearts. What happens if we've got some of those people that come through these doors and they want to find Jesus? Are we going to shun them because they're not like us? Or we may be tested in that. We're not to give up hope. If people are still breathing, there's hope for God's intervention in their lives. And God wants to use us to help them. This Samaritan was not afraid to help. It says, same word, he perceived, he realized, he came, he saw, but he came close. And he had compassion rather than passing by. He went to him. He bandaged his wounds. Look at the list there. He doctored him, poured oil and wine on them. He used what he had to help the man. He brought him to safety. He set him on his own animal. He brought him to the rehab center. It happened to be an inn. He provided for long-term care at his own expense. You got to see, Jesus has set himself up to, as an illustration, he is the good Samaritan in in this story. This is how he handles you and me. Those who could be caught in the sin of self-righteousness is maybe this Levite, this lawyer, this priest. Jesus does the very same thing for those that are broken and contrite. This guy was broken near death. He's dying. He and I are near death when Jesus came into our lives, were we not? We were one step away, one moment, one breath away from eternal destruction, and God stepped in and redeemed us and saved our lives. He comes upon us. He knows our state. He knows where we're at. But he's coming to help us. He sends the Holy Spirit to convict us of sin so that we're receptive to his help. He bandages our wounds because he wants to bring healing to us. He knows we're wounded by sin. He doctors us with the best of the oil and the wine, the wine of sterilization. Yes, our wounds need cleansing if we're going to heal property. Not every, when we come to Jesus, not everything in our life is instantaneously healed. We got baggage, we got issues, we got blind spots. And it's the process of regeneration and walking with God day after day, month after month, year after year, that the Holy Spirit refines, regenerates, and changes us. It's called abiding in Christ so that we grow in Christ. But that 
Growth can be hindered if I don't deal with sin properly as a Christian. I must deal with it. Jesus doctors us with the wine of sterilization. And we have the need of oil, the comfort of the Holy Spirit, if we're going to make it on this road to recovery. And that's what Jesus does. He takes us poor sinners and he puts us on the road to recovery at his expense. We are safe with Jesus. You're safe with Jesus now. Missionary friend, Dale Mwanji from Uganda, sweet brother, powerful in the scriptures, powerful in the work that God has done in his ministry there. Prayed for many people and God had healed them of AIDS. He prays for his sister. She has AIDS. She dies. He's so upset with God. I pray for all these people. I don't even know them. And God, you healed them. And my sister, I pray for her and she dies. For a few weeks, he's just struggling. This, I don't get this. I don't understand, Lord. This is so nice. I love my sister. Imagine putting yourself in that situation. How many of you have lost loved ones? You prayed, but God didn't answer. They died. And one day, through his pain and his sorrow and his brokenness before God, God, the Spirit of God spoke to him and said, she's safe with me. So before you question God's judgment and taking someone prematurely in our minds, let's understand they're safe with Jesus. We're all safe with Jesus. We're not only on the road to recovery and Jesus doesn't, always, doesn't just take care of our immediate needs. He's got a long-term plan of our, for our care. And it's at his expense. It's grace upon grace. It's mercy upon mercy. It's poured out upon us because of God's great love. Our responsibility is not to heal everybody that's broken around us, but it is to understand that these people are created in the image of God. It's our responsibility to help those that are desperate in desperate straits, as, as it were, and to have compassion. We're not all doctors. We're not all psychologists. We can't help people with their baggage and everything that, that's happened in their life and all the damage that's incurred by sin, but we can love them. We can give of what God has given to us. This man just took what he had with him. He used what he had, and that's really all God asks us to do. Just use what you have help those in need. Is, is what I possess so, so precious that it can't be replaced? I have to keep everything that I've ever labored for? You know, God asked us, as it were, to live sacrificial lives. Jesus Christ lived every day of his life in a sacrificial manner. Not only that, he became the ultimate sacrifice in so, so doing. See, this is the kind of attitude that we're to have if we're to be delivered from self-righteousness. We have to live sacrificial lives. If Christ, our Savior, suffered, we're going to suffer. We're going to identify with Him. You want to have a transformed life? You want to be delivered from self-righteousness? And I'm going to give you five things that I have prayed for and pray about and pray into my life because... Trust me, I've got issues too. No different than you. They're not in any particular order, but they are powerful. 
And if applied in attitude and heart, you will grow and you will be transformed and you will be delivered from deceptive blind spot of self-righteousness. Number one, call sin, sin. And in so doing, don't have self-pity. Number two, never own anything. Number three, never defend yourself. God is our defender. Never pass on anything hurtful of another. Now, I can't tell you how many times I've blown that one. And God help us. Stop being a judge. Stop being self-righteous. Number five, never accept glory for anything. These things, these attitudes lead to living a sacrificial life because God has called us to lay down our lives and stop possessing our lives as though our lives were something special. We're only special to God, not to ourselves. That's what Paul said. Neither do I count my life dear to myself. God possesses us. He, we belong to him. He's watching over us. His great care. He cares about you more than you care about yourself, which is hard to imagine, but it's the truth. You know, we watch over newborn babies and little toddlers with great care. We want to make sure that their needs are met and they're protected. That's how God looks and watches over you. You think he's, everything that happens in my life has to go through the filter of his love before it can even touch me. That's a wonderful thing. The last one is also key. You need to study before you're tested by God. We don't want to test God. That's not a good thing. But we might do ourselves a favor if we would study, and this is what this last section here is about, real crookly. Now, it happened on, oops. Now, it happened as they went and entered a certain village. A certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. She had a sister called Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. Martha was distracted with much serving. And she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you're worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part which will not be taken away from her. Notice here again one of my favorite words of Luke, a certain village and a certain woman. Never forget that you are a certain person before God. And this section is about the test that we're put forth, or to, how we're to prepare for the test. And it's based upon worship, and it's based upon our service. Those are the study materials that God uses to prepare us for heaven, our worship and our service. Mary and her sister, Martha and her, Mary, uh, and her sister Mary, uh, I think uh, Martha appears to be the older of the two. It's her house, and... She's distracted with much serving and on her younger sister sat at Jesus' feet. Now, I like this word here because it implies that she sat right beside him, like scooch over Jesus. 
I remember growing up with the kids, and you know, you get five of them, and they're all gathered around. We pile on the couch. <laughs> you know, they're just little munchigans. <laughs> you just jam right in there, like, you okay? Give me some space. <laughs> and you just get the idea when you read this story, it's like that <laughs> Mary's right there. She's not on his feet. She's not at his feet. She's on his feet. <laughs> And I just, that is, is a beautiful picture of her love and her desire to hear the word of Christ. To hear, to, it's a kuo, it's to hear with understanding. And she's there um, to just drink in every word that Jesus is bringing to the disciples and the people in that room. And Martha, obviously, the hostess. Everything has to be in order. Everything has, I mean, we are serving the king. Uh, this is important that we have everything in line for the Messiah. No, everything's got to be clean and in order, but I can't do this all by myself. You're copping out. You're lazy. I mean, whatever went through her mind, but she transfers that to whether Jesus really cares about her. Wow. Does Jesus care about you workaholics. I'm in that group. I'm speaking to myself. I, hey, I get this. I got Martha problems coming in, in spades, okay? But notice how Jesus answered her. It's a gentle rebuke. He, he does care, Martha. Martha, he says it twice. That's an indication that this just saying here, Sister, your younger sister has chosen the right thing. It's not going to get taken away. You're worried about many things. You're troubled about many things. What are you troubled about this morning? What are you worried about? Is it getting in your way of worship? Is it getting in your way of your devotional life? It's best to be a Mary. It's one thing that's needed. Sitting at the feet of Jesus. It's the good part. And you know what? I have found that in my, all my busyness and my little list that I want to check off every day because, you know, being efficient, that's, that's good, you know. I have found that when I fail to give God the appropriate time in prayer, and meditation on his word that it my my day's clanky it doesn't flow quite like it should but if I'll take the time I'll get that time back in efficiency no I love efficiency I'll get it back I mean it just flows and I'm, I'm you know that's not why I have devotions right <laughs> I'm just saying the time is well spent God's able to Redeem the time. Sometimes you have to get to bed a little bit earlier so you can get up a little bit earlier before you have to depart to go to work. So I want to close with this story. It's short. Sometimes we're better off by subtracting things from our life than adding things. Oh, if I just need to add this to my life. No, 
for most of us, including myself, sometimes it's better just to subtract. Sometimes less is more. It's a silly, it's a funny little story. This 67-year-old woman is going to have cataract surgery, and she goes in, and um, the trainees um, and the ophthalmologists that are working with her um, are getting her ready, and they're numbing her eye, and the guy noticed that there's a little blue thing in, above her eyelid. And so he puts one of those, um, I think it's called a speculum, you know, the thing that holds your, the thing you hate, that holds your, your eye open or, so the doctor can look at it so you don't blink. And so they open her eye up and the trainee starts pulling out these contact lenses, these disposable ones. And he finds 27 <laughs> contact lenses. And she'll, she used these disposable lenses and she thinks she's pulling them up. In reality, they're, she thinks they're dropping on the floor, but she has no pain, no suffering. It's just 27 piled upon each, one upon another type of thing. And of course, they'd never seen anything like that. And the point is, Sometimes you don't need another. You just need to subtract. There's some things in your life you just need to get rid of and don't just keep adding to your life. So this is a, a tough message. You've taken it very patiently. It applies to all of us. May God help us because time is short. We're going to have to face the test someday. But let's study hard for our test. Let's cram for our final. Amen? Shall we stand? Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you teach us what is good and what is right. And we ask, Lord, that you would just be merciful and gracious to each of us and just help us to walk worthy and to finish well. In Jesus' name, amen. We have something special here before we have a closing song. And in fact, before we have the closing